Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. On February 26th, U.S. Customs agents intercepted a package. It was made to look like Xbox video game controllers, but inside it was full of egg cases, eggs that would ultimately hatch to reveal hundreds of praying mantises. Those mantises are now alive, and apparently well, in St. Louis. And our guest today is here to explain how they got here and why anyone would traffic in black market praying mantises to begin with. There is so much to discuss. And that guest is Tad Jankowski. He's the senior entomologist at the Missouri Botanical Gardens Butterfly House. Tad, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with the question that I'm sure is on the minds of everyone who doesn't share your love for insects. What kind of market is there for black market praying mantises? Yeah, that's actually a question we get asked a lot here as well when people hear the story. And believe it or not, there is a pretty extensive underground pet trade for exotic insects. And right now, praying mantises are very popular. Pet trade? Like people are keeping these things, like hanging out with them, petting them? I mean, what can you do with a praying mantis? Yeah, so uh, it's sort of an exotic pet like a snake or other lizard that may not be as cute and cuddly as something like a cat or dog, but a lot of people enjoy having them as pets. They um, are excited about the possibility of breeding them and raising them, and I can sort of relate because I consider myself a proud bug dad myself of all the animals I keep here at the Butterfly House. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, it is illegal for most people to have things like exotic praying mantids, but there is a black market uh, where you can get your hands on them sometimes. So why is it illegal to have these, um, some of these versions in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. So they're regulated by the United States Department of Agriculture, and that's the same uh, regulation body that uh, regulates the Butterfly House. And they're concerned about the effects of non-native organisms and what they could have on United States agriculture. Uh, Specifically with praying mantids, they could um, affect other native praying mantids that are important biological control agents, or they could uh, upset the natural balance of other insects that live in the wild. And so because of that, uh, praying mantids and a lot of the other animals we have, like our butterflies, are very closely regulated by the government. Hmm. Boy, just all these things you just don't think about unless you're in the insect business. So it's, it's great that we have you here to walk us through this. Um, so these ones that the U.S. Customs agents found, I know you weren't there, but you also um, have gotten really good at telling this story. So, so they were in a bunch of Xbox video game controllers. How were they concealed in there? Yeah, so they were looking at the manifests of the shipments coming in, and the person exporting them from Germany was a known person to them, is my understanding, that he had some history with uh, sending stuff to the United States that he probably shouldn't have been. (laughs) And the person receiving them in Texas also apparently had a similar history. And also, it didn't necessarily make sense that you'd be paying all of this money to send Xbox controllers from Germany to Texas when you could go and get them at a local store. (laughs) And so they put two and two together and decided to take a closer look at this package. Uh, They ran it through some x-rays and they eventually discovered that the Xbox controllers had their guts inside hollowed out and there were 27 total praying mantis egg cases hidden inside. And when you say 27 egg cases, how many eggs are in an egg case? 
So there were about eight or nine total different species hmm. of praying mantises, and they were ranging from very large egg cases to very small. The smallest species had maybe a dozen to 20 eggs per egg case, but the larger species had anywhere from 100 to 200 eggs in each egg case. Hmm. I feel like when the feds intercept this kind of stuff, when it's drugs, for example, they were always talking about the street value. Do we have any idea of the street value of this number of praying mantises? Absolutely. And, and that's a, a little bit of a tough number to come up with, because if you sell the praying mantids right after they hatch, they're worth a fraction of what they're worth if you raise them to adulthood because the more time you invest and in, uh, they're a little bit more likely to die when they're younger. And hmm. so the adults are worth more. But some of the adults for these species can sell for $100 each. Um, on the low end, they may sell for 30 or $40 each. So even if you say an average of 50 or $60, when there's potentially thousands of babies that could come out of them, the number adds up very quickly. Yes. And so $100 each for some of these adults, how exotic um, are some of these uh, mantids that you're dealing with here? Do you know where they originally came from as opposed to where this package came from? Yeah. So we got praying mantids that came from at least three different continents. We got uh, stuff that came from Malaysia, the orchid mantis, which is very popular uh, amongst collectors and exhibitors and breeders. Um, they are beautiful white and pink praying mantids that look like the flowers of a Phalaenopsis orchid. Whoa. Uh, and those are some of the ones that may command the most premium prices right now. Um, interestingly, some of the ones that we got that were more rare aren't necessarily as popular right now with collectors uh, because they're smaller and not as showy. But we were still very excited to get them because these were species that, uh, reaching out to my colleagues, I myself, none of us had ever actually seen these in person before. Hmm. And so uh, I believe we are one of the first, if not the first, um, insectariums in the country to have uh, the ivory boxer mantis, which is one species we have. It's a very small mantis. We just had the first ones turn into adults. And even as adults, they're barely an inch long. Hmm. Boy, I am. my mind is almost blown right now just hearing you describe the various appeal of these various types. And, you know, collectors are going after these things. I guess there's a, really a market for everything in the world, if you think about it. Uh, I guess this is all old hat to you, but, but my mind here is blown. So you're talking about the Missouri Botanical garden ends up with these uh, mantids. How did you guys end up getting involved? So I went to a conference in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we try to go almost every year. It's the Invertebrates and Education and Conservation Conference. And it's a conference for like-minded people like us that basically want to promote insect education, insect conservation. Uh, there's a lot of people that come from insect zoos and insectariums around the country. And I was fortunate enough to meet a U.S. Fish and Wildlife agent out of Louisville, Kentucky, who fancies himself as an amateur entomologist <laughs> and is very much an animal lover. And he was there on a professional level, but also a personal level, because he wanted to put names to faces to these uh, to the importers like myself from, from around the country that have perhaps imported things legally through his offices. And we got to talking, and he was telling about stories where he's had in the past to intercept animals just like these mantids that were illegally imported, and his hands are very much uh, tied with his options of what he can do with them. Hmm. 
He can potentially send them back to be released into the wild if that's possible. More often than not, for things like insects, that's not usually an option because of their short lifespan or um, don't necessarily know exactly where they came from. Mm -hmm. If he can't return them to the wild, they can't legally be um, released to the person who was importing them. Oftentimes in the past, they would have had to been euthanized. Oh, my. And so, yeah, and, and nobody wants that, especially not him and especially not us. And so uh, I reach out to him. He works the night shift uh, there. He works from about um, 1 in the morning until 7, and I gave him my cell phone, and I said, you can call me any time of the day, day or night. If you ever have an animal emergency or need help placing an animal, um, we would be happy to help facilitate that. We here at the Butterfly House are actually an AZA accredited institution. That's the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Hmm. We were the first standalone insect zoo in the country to be accredited. And that allows us to have a lot of um, reach with other zoos and similar institutions around the country. And so we were able to sort of serve as a hub so that if he gets these mantids or other related animals, even if we can't take them, we can put him in touch with people who can. Wow, that is some great networking. I have to say, you're kind of making a good case for the importance of going to these conferences, which, you know, now that everything's switched to virtual, people are like, do we need to do these in-person things? Based on your story, it sounds like this would have never happened if you hadn't ended up having this this great conversation with this guy. It certainly would have been much more difficult. There's been some seizures in the past with things like uh, tarantulas and things like that, but we're trying to really put ourselves out there so that we can help these animals find um, homes instead of being euthanized. Now, you talked about the possibility of if you guys couldn't take them. Was there any discussion of, hey, this might be a lot for the botanical garden to take on? Maybe we should farm these out elsewhere. Uh, certainly was. Uh, and when we originally agreed to take them, the world was a little bit different since it was late February. <laughs> um, we ended up receiving them around the first week of March. And shortly after that, we did have to shut down. Uh, but at that point, we had already dove in uh, and we were in the deep end and we were excited to to, uh, to to keep going with this project. It was a lot of fun caring for them all. It was a lot of mouths to feed. I've spent many hours over the past few months feeding praying mantids. But now that we have a lot that are becoming adults or um, nearly becoming adults, we've been able to give them away to other institutions. We're about to give some here to the St. Louis Zoo. We're making the final arrangements for that. And we've sent some to Iowa, and we have plans to send some out to other institutions around the country. So you're kind of the dad to these uh, little mantids. Are you able to keep some there now that they've, um, you know, they've sort of hit this point where they're out of the danger zone? Get to keep your little sons and daughters around? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, and I'm always excited to show people my babies. We have a few on display right now uh, out in our Small Wonders area. But we plan on keeping as many as we can. We hope to try to breed the ones we have now and try to keep uh, the generations going for the future. And potentially, if we are successful in breeding them, we'll have even more to give away to other institutions around the around the country. So this idea of breeding them, big picture, um, what is the benefit to having mantids um, in our ecosystem? What, what do they bring to the table? Well, they're very important predators. Um, they control a lot of pests. A lot of things that people don't like to see in their gardens or around their houses are a lot of the things that the praying mantids in the wild would be eating for lunch and dinner. They're going to go for flies. They're going to go for, um, you know, pest moths and things like that that might be on your plants. Um, they will also go for the occasional butterfly and other things. They're fairly indiscriminate, but a lot of what they end up eating are a lot of 
animals that most people would probably consider nuisances if they were in their flower gardens or things like that. Hmm. So these are the good bugs that get rid of the bad bugs. Absolutely. They're very beneficial insects. We're talking to Tad Jankowski. He's the senior entomologist at the Missouri Botanical Garden's Butterfly House, and he's telling us this amazing story of how the Botanical Garden ended up with hundreds of black market praying mantises. So if you have a question or comment about these mantids or about insects in general, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or you can email us at talk at STLPublic. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly to continue this conversation here with Tad. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Tad Jankowski. He's a senior entomologist at the Missouri Botanical Garden's Butterfly House, but he calls himself a single bug dad to 500-something black market mantids that ended up here in St. Louis. So, Tad, you had mentioned that when these guys were little, it was a fair amount of work on your part. How high maintenance are baby mantises? Uh, They need a lot of attention, a lot of care. Um, Praying mantids are predators and they are capable of eating things up to their own body size. And so, unfortunately, that means that their siblings that also hatch from the same egg case as they did are perfect-sized snacks oh, if they no. get hungry. Oh, no. So you have uh, to keep, perfect... them, keep them apart from each other? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we isolated them into small groups. In a perfect scenario, we would have uh, isolated each one independently. But when we had many, many hundreds, we made the decision to keep them in groups of about five. And we would go and feed them every other day. Uh, we divided them up into two groups. And so we had a couple hundred that were getting fed every single day. And at first, we were raising fruit flies probably by the thousands and thousands, and we were making sure they always had ample fruit flies at the ready for them to snack on whenever they were hungry. And then it was a very exciting day when they started to get big enough that they could take down larger prey like smaller crickets. So you ended up keeping some of them in groups. Uh, You just couldn't separate them all. Did any of them end up snacking on their siblings? It does happen a little bit, and in some ways that's sort of the natural way uh, that they may take care of the weaker individuals that may have been a little less healthy, but those ones that do um, get the extra protein, the extra food, usually benefit from it and become strong, healthy adults. Hmm. So you've now raised them. You say some of them are now in adulthood. Um, How long does a mantis generally live? It depends on the species, but they can live up to a year or even a little bit longer if uh, you get one that just has really good genes and eats really well. Longer, like they can get into multiple years, or we're looking more like a year and a half here for the, the ones with the best genetics? Yeah, though about a year to maybe a year and a few months is probably about as long as most of them would live. Mm-hmm. Most of them in the wild would, would not live p- past one year. Okay. Well, I'm going to go to the phone lines here. Mark is calling from Imperial uh, with some thoughts on these mantises. And I, our phone lines are open. If you've got a question for our senior entomologist here, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Uh, you can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Um, let's go to Mark. Um, hi, Mark. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, hi, Ted and uh, Post. 
Yes. Hi, Mark. <laughs> uh, th- thank I, you for joining uh, us. Oh, sure, sure. Thank you. This is an incredible program, and I just have a very significant comment. Um, I've been sitting in Asia for like 60 years, and I've been working on a six-acre prairie in northern Jefferson County, just south of town. Hmm. Um, I have a Chinese mantis problem, and Ted probably, maybe, I'm sure he's familiar with them. Um, they're, um, they are ambush predators, as I'm sure Ted knows. Um, they'll sit on my prairie plants and grab anything they can. Monarchs, especially. Ooh. I have a. I have a. One year, I just grabbed under where they perch monarch wings, and I have like a baking dish full of monarch wings. And when you consider the distribution of the Chinese manis all over the nation, especially I guess from the plains east, I think this insect, non-native, is having a significant impact on on our native uh, not only invertebrates but vertebrates. I've caught here in the valley in, in my prairie. I've caught three of them with hummingbirds. Um, they will take anything, dragonflies, bees, any kind of mm-hmm. butterfly. Um, so they are really a major problem. And uh, the public, I think, really needs to be aware of this. If they do have them for school projects, they need to be very strictly controlled. Hmm. Um, they are just Chinese manuscripts. They really show up mostly late August to September here in the St. Louis area when monarchs are moving south en masse. And they just gobble them up. Wow. Um, well, Mark, so, thank you for that observation. That that does sound like a huge problem. Tad, when we're talking about these Chinese uh, mantids, are they originally from China? They are. And so it's one of the reasons why the government is so concerned about other non-native species of mantids, is we do unfortunately have this track record with the Chinese mantis. They were legally brought here as a biocontrol agent uh, over a hundred years ago, and they are native to Southeast Asia, and they became established here in North America, especially the eastern half, and they are in many areas the dominant species of praying mantis, and they are often sold, the egg cases are sold for biocontrol agents, as Mark mentioned, you can often buy uh, non-native Chinese mantis eggs that you can hatch and release into your garden or greenhouse, because they are voracious predators and they do eat basically anything they can catch, but unfortunately, they are out-competing the native praying mantids. If you see a praying mantis in your backyard that's longer than about three or four inches, it's mm. probably the praying mantis. The most common native one you'll see around here is the Carolina mantis, but it is much smaller than the Chinese mantis. The Chinese mantids can be up to six inches uh, long or, or even maybe a little bit bigger if you find a very large uh, individual. And they have been known to catch hummingbirds. And uh, for whatever reason, even things that are nasty tasting like the monarch butterfly that's chemically protected, they don't seem to mind too much. And they'll even eat things like monarch butterflies. Wow. Tad, I know when we've talked to the plant people at the Botanical Garden before, they encourage us to rip up some of these non-native species. I'm assuming you don't want us to go out and try to slaughter the Chinese mantids, or do you? Well, that's a tough question to answer because many ecologists out there will actually tell you and recommend that if you see a Chinese mantis that you are completely sure that you can identify it correctly, that it's better to remove it from the ecosystem. Wow. Uh, If you can identify the Chinese mantis egg cases, which look sort of like um, sort of plaster of Paris ping pong balls that they stick to plants, the native praying mantis egg cases are much more um, flat 
and sleek and they sort of stick to the plant stem where the praying mantises are larger and rounder. They even recommend destroying those if you see them. Hmm. We want, we always are a little hesitant to um, give instructions to kill on site because sometimes um, people that have good intentions could accidentally kill the natives as well. Uh, but in general, most ecologists sort of recommend physically controlling and removing any Chinese mantids that you do see. Hmm. And you say these were originally brought here to be biocontrol agents. Was there a particular pest they were trying to get these guys to combat? That's a great question. And I don't know that offhand. I would suspect that it was probably something in um, fruit orchards. A lot of uh, those insects were brought over to control uh, pests in, in uh, fruit trees and related crops. Hmm. Uh, but I would have to double check to know for sure. Well, I want to thank Mark for that call. That was fascinating. Who knew the hummingbirds were at risk? Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Joseph is calling from St. Louis. Um, Joseph, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Yeah, hi. I just had a question in regards to, you mentioned breeding and all the different amounts of different species that you have. When it comes to breeding, which ones do you breed and are there certain things that you select for uh, when you're looking to breed these mantis? It's a great question. Sure, great thanks, question. Joseph. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. Um, when we're looking at breeding, we try to select the healthiest individuals. Um, when at all possible, we try to take individuals that are not closely related to each other to, in, uh, to avoid inbreeding. A lot of insects in general are fairly resistant to having negative effects from inbreeding, but mantids are one that you can start to see some ill effects sooner than other species. Um, we, at all possible though, just try to breed all of our animals we hear, uh, have here at the Butterfly House in captivity. We try to um, rely on wild-caught specimens as little as possible. And so if we think it's a worthy animal for display, we try to breed them here. Uh, we also are working with some species that may not be as suited for display, but are imperiled or endangered in the wild. And we're attempting to breed them as well and incorporate them into our displays. Hmm. Right now we have three different species um, that we received through, through the seizure that have become adults. We have the deadleaf mantis from Malaysia, uh, the orchid mantis, which is also from Malaysia, and then the ivory boxer mantis, which is from the Ivory Coast in Africa. And all three species we now have adults, and we plan on breeding uh, all three of those. Okay, well, we're going to have to keep an eye on how that breeding program goes. That, that sounds pretty exciting. And that was another great question from Joseph. Let's go back to the phone lines. Emery uh, is calling from St. Louis. Um, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Uh, when I was younger, growing up, I would often see uh, praying mantis and also the uh, walking sticks, we call them, uh, mm -hmm. in our garden. But here in St. Louis, uh, in the last few years, I've very seldom seen some. And I'm wondering if they native ones are endangered species and what would be the causes for that. Uh, thank you for that, Emery. Tad, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, great question, Emery. So with the praying mantids, especially the native Carolina mantids, they are still out in their native habitats uh, in fair abundance. If you go out into prairie type habitats, you can usually find some if you know where to look for them. But I suspect their numbers have likely been decreasing. I don't know of any studies that have really looked uh, at their population changes over time, but many native insects uh, including praying mantids, including walking sticks, have 
uh, dramatically declined in numbers in, in recent decades. The overall biomass of insects that are present in most ecosystems has significantly decreased. And to be honest, most entomologists are very concerned about it. Hmm. Um, there have been studies um, looking at the spots that hit your windshield. They're measuring how many cars are hitting bugs, and you used to see a lot more than you do now. And it may sound sort of funny or unscientific, but that's actually a way of comparing um, just the number of insects that are flying. There's some studies around the world that look at the total mass of insects that they've collected in different traps, and they found in the past 20 years that some traps are catching 90% less insects that are out flying around. Um, things like walking sticks could be affected by pesticide sprays. If people are spraying uh, for Japanese beetles or other pests in their gardens, if they're near the trees that walking sticks are living in, they could be susceptible to overspray or drift spray for those pesticides. Uh, so you always want to be very careful where you're spraying so that you're not affecting a non-target organism like a walking stick. Hmm. But overall, it's not just walking sticks or praying mantids. Um, the reality is most native insects are struggling right now. And they're not officially what we would consider endangered, but most of them certainly need some help from us. Okay. Well, we had some great callers today. And Tad, I got to say, this is such a fascinating story. And you were just on top of every question people had. So <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. And Tad, again, he's a senior entomologist at the Missouri Botanical Gardens Butterfly House. The Botanical Garden is now, again, reopen. Um, so if people want to go check those out, uh, the mantids are going to be on display. And that is, the mantids are currently on display. Is that fair to say? That's right. We're doing guided tours here at the Butterfly House. We've been open. This is our second week. And one of our stops is that you get to see up close and personal our dead leaf mantids and see if you can find them hiding in plain sight. Okay. Well, that's a great task uh, to get on here. So, Tad, thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much. And before we go to the break, we need your help. It's been 20 years since St. Louis's own Nellie released Country Grammar. The album sold more than 10 million copies and achieved diamond status. We'll discuss its impact on Friday's show, and we want to hear from you. Was Country Grammar the soundtrack to your summer 20 years ago? What memories does listening to the album evoke today? Send us a voicemail with your thoughts at 314-516-6397. That's 314-516-6397. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.